Love is his name. Love is his nature. And love is his life. All right, this is our sixth session. Um, and we're reading the gospel according to Mark. And we left off at chapter four on this very important parable of the sower, where Jesus is comparing humanity to different types of soil as to where God, the Father, who is always trying to break in and guide us and lead us, falls on different kinds of people. Depending on the type, different things happen, as we saw. Hopefully, we have the good soil, that the seed of God. And I said the Greek word for seed is the same word for semen, both in Latin and in Greek. So it's the semen of God. It's the seed of God, God planting himself within us that is being talked about here. And, and that's what Mark calls the word. That is the word logos in Greek, which has many meanings. And it's translated as word, but it doesn't usually have that meaning. It really means anything that is uttered, an utterance of God, an expression, God expressing himself. It's a, it means a speech or a talk that somebody gives. So it has anything that is uttered or, or expressed verbally. It also has, on the other hand, a, a more mental or spiritual meaning of reasoning, or the power of reasoning or rationality. That's the other side of this word. This root, L-O-G, is the root that, that means to uh, speak. There's a verb, legain, that means to speak. So it's the same, same root there. Are there any questions about that parable? That parabole, as I said in Greek, is a, is a comparison. And Jesus is always comparing things because ordinary folks don't quite seem to get it if he, express, if he expresses himself straightforward. But sometimes, as even here, the, his close disciples couldn't understand what he was talking about. We're lucky that we, we know what he explained it to his disciples afterwards. So Yes, absolutely. We went up on them. Right. And as I had mentioned, you know, here in Mark, the seed, Mark just calls it the Logos. Whereas in Luke, in the same story of the sower, it's called the word of God. You know, the utterance of God, God expressing himself, God trying to utter things within us. And in Matthew, it's called the word of the kingdom. And as I had mentioned, that's kind of a euphemism for saying word of God, because they were still very Jewish and were hesitant to use the word, to express the word God in many, still in many situations. So. They would often, in Matthew, use the word kingdom instead of God, or heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So you, you find those kinds of variations there. Any, any questions on this? Can we go on? Yes. Okay. We'll start with verse 21 in chapter 4. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket, or under the bed, and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given you. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
Has anyone ever puzzled over that? <laughs> As I have? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. My understanding of the last part, anyway, is that if you are really trying to discern God's will, obey what you hear from him, that will lead to more God giving you more grace, more wisdom to then deal with, so that you keep building grace upon grace. You know, one degree leads to an, another de higher degree, and, and that's how I understand that. In, in the sense of uh, these are grace. And, and what is grace? The Greek word for grace is charis. And basically, we use the term grace, gratia in Latin, G-R-A-T-I-A. But basically, it's, it's a favor or a kindness that someone does. That's what that means. God's grace, he's, he's trying to help us along in our journey to back to him. This charis or grace, and the Latin word is gratia, that gives our English word grace, is what we're talking about here. Is that the root of charity, that word? Charity goes back to a Latin word caritas, okay. which means love. Yeah, caritas, charity is from that Latin word. Is, it, is charisma related to charis? Yes, yeah, that's right. Charisma, charismatic. That's a, again, caritas is Latin, but charisma is, is Greek. And that's, that's the same root, the car there, C-H-A-R, charis. And there's another Greek word, kara, which means joy, same root. A lot of these words are related. But what about the part where of those that don't have, more will be taken? I think there's something said there that we really need to get off our behinds and, and uh, pay attention to God and not to our own self-interests or whatever. We're so, so involved so in actually, things. So when we hear that, it doesn't mean those that have little. It doesn't mean outward possessions, money and such, but rather it's those that have little understanding of the things of God. Yes. See, a lot of people don't take it that way. I, I, I know what he's saying, Jack, and I think that's, that's unfortunate, but it's, it's actually true. I think really that it's not material things, clearly. It's one's attitude, how one, one does with the grace that's given to a person. If your attitude is to ignore that, to pay attention much more to all sorts of worldly, materialistic kinds of endeavors or whatever, rather than paying some attention to God, then, you know, even what you have there will be taken away. So when those that have little, it's not little material substance or they're, or they're poor outwardly, but rather inwardly they're poor. Right, right. yes, right. Yeah. That's, that's how I understand that. Like I said, that's often misunderstood today. There's a lot that's misunderstood in the New Testament, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, I had a, a question. So is in the original Greek, is the word grace used in this parable or is it just kind of understood from the context uh, that that's what he refers to it's not used right here but I'm, i let me just go check i don't think it was the first was that well back up under like four. the beginning in 21 where he's just saying he, he's just kind of referencing the idea of grace when he's saying you know is a lamp 
brought to be put under a basket or under a bed. That what he's referencing the and idea. 24, no, but 24, 20, 25 would be where grace is. But no, the word itself is not used here, but that's my understanding. Okay. And then in 21, well, we didn't talk about that. That's where I, I think, well, what, maybe I should ask people here, what do they think that lamp is? That, that lamp is the presence of God in your life, and you should not hide it and cover it over, but rather you should let it flow out or shine out. I think we're, that's right, Jack. Aren't we talking about the light, Christ? I am the light of the world. Yes. 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 The light of Christ within. Okay. But again, as Jack, yeah, because again, as Jack is saying about misinterpretation, I think it would be easy to feel that it's the Christ of history or the Bible, you know, but not the light that's within us that we need to let shine out. Yeah, that's such an important thing. I mean, you know, I know Quakers have been focusing at least you know confers traditional early conservative friends have focused on the light of christ within not that other christians don't also focus on christ being within but it seems to be not held in such an important place as the spirit of christ is is really where what we're talking about here that 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 spirit is a living spirit and, and not something on the side thanks all right, should we go on to the next little parable, parabole, or comparison? Yes. 26. He also said, well, again, these comparisons, these parables, parabole, is the word that gives us parable, but it means comparison is his basic meaning. Jesus is always speaking in comparisons. This is the, he's comparing the kingdom of God, okay, the state of God, and that's where we're at. He also said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain and the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. I think this follows what was just said in the earlier words we just read about one grace leading to more grace, more graces, that as we are paying more attention and are aware of more of that kingdom of God, that state of God within us, that domain, that realm, that, that spiritual energy field of God within us, as we focus more on that, that grows. It becomes more apparent in us. And we focus more on it as it does become more apparent until it becomes like, well, like corn, ending up in a full head of corn. And then, and then a question would be what we have to do with that. What do we have to do with this growth? It doesn't sound, from the parable, it doesn't sound like we have much to do with it. I'm not saying that's the case, but that's how it sounds. Well, the growth, the growth is, the, is the growth in our awareness of what's already there, I think that the kingdom of God is already a spiritual presence. Oh. Uh, we only become more and more aware of it as we grow in our faith and our obedience to listening to what God is trying to tell us all the time, how, how he is trying to lead us, how this living spirit, this Christ within us is there to guide us and protect us and defend us and be an aid to us, an advocate. So the presence of God is a constant, and then what grows is our awareness. 
and our closeness to him also right and our and what what we do with our lives that the the grain the mature grain is the fruits of the spirit that growing within us his work not our own his presence becomes mature in us as we obey and follow and listen that's called perfection in christian spiritual terminology perfection meaning not perfectionism but a full development a, a completion of that growth that we are uh, our growth in god our growth in our spiritual closeness to god our, our growth in doing more and more of his will as we discern it as we also change ourselves and transform ourselves more and more into sons and daughters of the living god all right ready for the next little parabole the parable of the mustard seed he also said with what can we compare the kingdom of god again one more parabole or what parable will we use for it it is like a mustard seed which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade okay i think we need some explanation here one needs to know that the mustard plant in palestine is a fairly large shrub it's not just a foot or two high it can grow up to like maybe six feet or more and if you just read this you say wait a minute i've never seen a mustard plant like that that you could call it a shrub or even a little tree but that is a a, a native mustard plant to palestine it is not and again of course it may be the smallest of all seeds there uh, but it isn't the smallest of all seeds that we know of today around the world, but it, it may be one of the smallest in Palestine, Palestine area. And again, this kingdom of God, this state of God starts off very small. I mean, again, we're talking about this kingdom of God that is within us, that is a state that can be ignored even. I mean, because if you recall in the discussion Jesus had in Luke, 17 verses 20 and 21 he was talking to the pharisees who of course were trying to get him arrested put out of business so to speak and uh he was saying when they asked him when the kingdom of god would come he said it's not one that you can see coming because the kingdom of god is within you i mean this this state of god is within even you and this is the plural uh form used in the greek he's talking to the pharisees the kingdom of god is even in you pharisees but not that they were aware of it or had any idea about it. Their, their minds were somewhere completely different. But this, this is the same focus here of this kingdom making, may start off very small in terms of our awareness of quiet, peaceful, divine seed within us that can grow and continue to grow as we grow in our spiritual life, in our journey to God. Yeah, and the, these parables illustrate that the seed and the seed being Christ present in our lives, the tendency is it for it to grow and increase and be fruitful over time. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Any other comments? Okay. Let's go on. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. 
I'm just checking on one word here. Yeah, he spoke the word, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. Again, that's the word logos. Again, that's the word of God. As I was saying, God's trying to utter something to us, trying to speak to us, trying to reveal things to us, trying to encourage us to be more holy sons and daughters of his. I know in my translation here, it's not capitalized, but I think I would capitalize it here. Again, it's a hard thing when you are translating this as word when it almost never means word. It very rarely means word. What translation are you using? I'm using the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. The RSV and the NRSV are fairly good translations in English, according to most English-speaking biblical scholars. Even though they say that, there are a lot of issues there that you have with it too, but in general it tends to be better than many other more commonly sold translations that you've seen in the last 50, 100 years in the English-speaking world. I always say too that the King James Version way back in the 1600s and 1611 was a pretty good translation for its time, but even then I know Quakers would complain about certain translations in it, and uh, of course today in reading it Many English words have changed their meaning so that you might get a mistaken interpretation or understanding if you're not aware of that fact that some words have changed their meanings. Even though they were correct in use then, they may mislead you today. I myself, you know, I'm looking at the Greek, but I often will look at the Russian translation because all our English, all the Western European translations have gone through what was the Jerome translation of the Greek New Testament into Latin. Before Jerome, who lived, uh, what were his dates, about 4th, 5th century, there were a number of different Latin translations from the Greek, but he did his own translation, and that became the most popular translation of the Bible into Latin. But again, there were translation mistakes there as well. And then they get forwarded into more modern languages if one is not looking at the Greek and aware of what the Greek originally said. So when I look at a Russian translation, which went through Eastern Christianity, Orthodox churches, and Eastern languages, you sometimes get a translation that is much closer to the Greek. So I'll look at a Russian translation. Actually, there were, I've got a couple of Russian translations. They're both somewhat archaic maybe not as archaic as the King James, but still it, it kind of gives you a clearer understanding. I think I mentioned here that the word doulos in Greek is the word for slave, and diakonos is the word for servant. Well, so often you'll see doulos translated as servant in English translations. The problem was that way back in the King James Version times, back in the 1600s, the word servant meant both servant in its modern sense, but also slave. So it was all right to translate doulos as servant at that point in time because it, it had that sense, because servant comes from the Latin word servus, which means slave in Latin. Am I confusing people? So, no. so you're saying that if you if we read the King James Version and we see the word servant, the people who did that translation could have meant slave. It could have meant either slave or servant in the modern sense. Whereas okay. servant in the modern sense is only this other word, diakonos, which is servant or minister. 
someone who ministers, someone who serves someone, like at a meal, but you know, he's not a slave. Paul is always calling himself a doulos of Christ Jesus or doulos of God. He's a slave of God, a slave of a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of justice, a God of truth. But when he talks about himself as a servant to others, I think the most common word he would use would be this word diakonos, which gives us our English word uh, deacon. We borrowed that word into English as deacon. So, I mean, this is just a point I'm making, but I'm saying this because if I look at the Russian translation, whenever I see the Greeks do lost, they clearly translate it in Russian as the word for slave, which is rap. So you're, you're saying that the Russian came directly from the Greek without going through? Yeah, that. Russian came directly from Old Church Slavonic from a thousand years ago, which, came, which was a direct translation from the Greek. And even this word for slave here, in Russian, tangent, rabota is the work, word for work. Rap is the word for slave, and rabota is, and that gives us our English word. Uh, you probably know this word. Same root, mm -hmm. robot. R-A-B is slave in Russian. Robot, same Slavic root, the R-O-B, R-A-B. Anyway, that's a little digression there. What, what I'm saying is be mindful that a translation might not be correct, or it might be slightly off, or something else. Early friends really were aware of this, and in their writings, they would sometimes tell, tell you specifically that something wasn't right in a translation. Those who had perhaps more of a uh, university education and knew Greek and Latin. You know, one, one needs to use one's intellect in the service of the Lord, as well as all other parts of our being. Okay. All right. Let's, um, let's go on. Okay. Any other questions on that? All right, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Does anyone recall where Jesus' home was? Capernaum. It was Capernaum, yes. Right, which is a town right on the Sea of Galilee. Of course, it's a fishing town. And there's an interesting thing here. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but of course it's not a sea in the sense of a sea as we think of it. You know, the seven seas, these parts of the oceans. Uh, this is actually a large lake. But that Greek word, thalassa, you mean both. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but isn't it the um, Lake of Tiberias also? In Gennesaret. Yes. I see a spiritual sense here in terms of this wind in the sea. For the peoples of this time, the sea was not considered to be a, such a pleasant place as we think of it as a place with beautiful waves and sandy beaches. 
but there was it was much more a feared thing, a thing to be feared, that storms could arise on the sea and boats could be demolished by the winds and the water. So that I, I, I've heard that the Sea of Galilee is very prone to sudden storms. Yeah, especially in that area, there's a, a narrow gap between two mountains that the wind can come through. Oh, okay. The northern part. Also, Henry, I'm wondering whether in those days when so much of the culture was pagan, whether there wasn't also a little bit of an undertone that the sea and the wind had some agency of their own because there was some spirit within it that could be. Yes, there was a, wasn't there a god of the wind? Um, sure. Uh, I can't recall who that was now. Yes, I mean, you'd have gods like that too. I was about to say, as he was just mentioning there, that, you know, we're taking this in a physical sense, but I think there's a spiritual understanding here too. If you think of Thalassa, of a sea as being a dangerous place, or a place that danger could occur, that if you take this in a spiritual sense, that we're talking maybe about fearful winds and gales and storms occurring within us emotionally or psychologically, and that the Spirit of Christ is a spirit that can calm those emotional crises that occur within us, those emotional, those psychological thoughts that may arise that put us into a great anxiety or into great depression, and that this living spirit of Christ is one that can help calm that angry sea within so us. you're using this, this story as, an, as your parable. You're looking for something, a deeper meaning within it, as if it were a parable, not right. just a superficial event. I'm just, I'm just recurring something that early friends said, that is to look for the spiritual meaning within Bible readings. And I think this is something I can get because I need it at times. I kind of forget that there is a guide, a living guide within me to help me get through some of the rough spots and times that occur. This story can be used in that sense in terms of not just taking it physically as this happening to Jesus and uh, his disciples at this time, but that the story itself can be looked at as a, a way of calming any emotional distress that I may have or we may have. Yeah, yeah I've heard it said, we're in the boat with him. <laughs> we are. Yes. If we're walking with him. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, it's a good story to remember. Okay. Any Henry? Um, the word for faith in, in Greek, does that have any particular significance that helps with interpretation here? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm involved in, how many, how many Bible studies am I involved in each week? I think at least three. So I don't remember who I said what to. And please forgive me if I haven't said it or if I've said it two or three times before. I just can't uh, keep them all straight. <laughs> All right. The word for faith is, the noun is pistis. Okay, that's the noun. We translate it, uh, the most common translation is faith or belief. Okay? Okay. And there's a verb, and this verb is the same thing, and this is a verb, and we translate it as to believe. That's the most common meanings you see for these two words, pistis and pisto. Also, there's one more word here. Let me, before I write it down, I just want to check, make sure I've got 
something right. I'm looking at a dictionary here. Okay, there we go. Hathamai. In all of these words, they all have the same root, which is th. The th becomes an s in the first couple. I'm just, I want to be specific. You, you don't need to worry about this. Anyway, that first syllable is all this root here. What all of these words, what they all have to do is has something to do with the word trust. Pistis is really trust. Most, that's the basic sense of the word is trust. Pistuo means to have trust in or to put one's trust in. Those are some of the meanings of this root. So pistis, if you, whenever I see this word in Greek, I don't think of faith or belief. More often, I think of the basic sense of trust. Belief in God is having trust that there is a God. And one's faith is what one has absolute trust in. That's in a spiritual sense. And to believe is to have trust in, to put one's trust in. Believe in the name of Jesus is to put one's trust in the name, in the, in the basic nature, the basic character, the basic essence of who Jesus was. That is, when they say believe in the name of Jesus, it's to put one's trust in that essence of the character of Jesus, who, who he really was, what he really was. Okay? Is, is that, in, in the Greek, would, would that word mean something you've learned? It's not something you start with, but it's something you learn as you go. I guess that's, a, that's the assumption. Yeah, you, you've, you've learned it. Well, either it's come to you personally, individually, or you've learned it from somewhere else, from reading or from listening to a preacher. No, you've learned it from experience. From experience, or it has that, I think, that understanding already. But getting down to this other word here, pathomai, which means to be persuaded. Again, the sense of trust, persuasion, belief. Pathomai, this has a lot of words. Well, patho, pathomai, to persuade, to be persuaded. And there's a sense of then obeying because one is persuaded. Again, I should say this word has a number of meanings, but this is a verb too. But again, I'm just pointed, I point these all out because I think too often there's a misunderstanding or, uh, of what we're talking about. There are various Christian religions that, Christian denominations that have creeds. I think the, the, the great majority of Christian denominations have creeds and you know the apostles creed the nicene creed and other creeds and they all begin with a phrase like i believe in one god mm -hmm. well that you can understand believe there in this word believe here too to to mean you know i i believe only in one god but you could also think of i put my trust only in one god i don't trust any other gods that other people might believe in. If they believe in mammon or they believe in other kinds of gods, you know, gods of winds or gods of war or, or you name it, whatever the god may be. Well, I like that persuaded, convincement. Are you not convinced? Are ah, you not yes. Yeah, that's the sense we have of convinced, the modern sense of convinced, yes. I probably should speak more about this some other time in the future about that, that verb too. You know, so often I think you hear of a statement of faith and then someone in some denomination, they will rattle off 10 or 20 articles of faith or whatever. 
Quakers have had a bit of a different sense of that. It's not like just memorizing a list of things that have to be believed. It's do you really have your trust in these things that you're saying is what matters more? Is that your utter, your, your confidence, uh, you know, have confidence. Well, this confidence, this goes back to a Latin word. The Latin word for faith is this, F-I-D-E-S, fides. And you see it right here in this word confidence, the F-I-D. So fides gives us our English word faith. That's where we borrowed it from, literally. It, so what we're saying is that, that having a, a faith, having a system of beliefs, is more than just rattling off a list of things. It's really being persuaded that they are true, that we have confidence in them. This is where we put our trust, not in something else, not in some other false god or gods. And we demonstrate that trust by relying on Christ. Yes. Okay. Well, we're almost come to the end of our time here. Yes, this might be a good place to stop at the end of chapter four. Any, anything further here? I, I should say that, uh, well, Karen knows that among Lutherans, faith was a very important article of the Lutheran church as it still is today. But this isn't the same sense that Quakers have had of faith. As I've been I'm trying really, to... I'm not really sure I understand the Lutheran position on faith. <laughs> I, I'm not sure either, but uh, I, at least I've begun to hear much more of it. Um, trying to understand it <clears throat> okay any questions any further comments well thank you henry that was very helpful talking about that word all right thanks for faith yeah we, we'll talk more about it in the future i think i'm going to do a little bit more research about patho and pathomai again this root is an important root the root is p-i-t-h but it becomes p-i-s or p-e-i-t-h and these other words here but there, there are quite a few theological disputations about the meanings of these words you know depending on whatever denomination people find themselves in okay well well thank thank you everyone um so we will see you all next week please be safe trust in the lord thank you henry <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. Oh, love, truth, and its testimony, whether its witness be to you or against you, love it that into my mother's house you all may come and into the chamber of her that conceived me, where you may embrace and be embraced of my dearly beloved one. Love is his name, love is his nature, and love is his life. This has been a podcast of Ohio Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. Our music was from Paulette Myers' CDs, which are Timeless Quaker Wisdom in Plainsong and Wellsprings of Life Quaker Wisdom in Chant. These CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com.